0: Only from Rustolium.
1: I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Today, I'm so honoured to be joined by music legend, humanitarian and activist Annie Lennox. Hailed as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time by Rolling Stone, Annie has won more Brit Awards than any other female artist in history, sold over 80 million records and was named, and I quote, the most successful female British artist in UK music history by the Official Charts Company in June 2013. In 2011, she was awarded an OBE for her contribution towards combating HIV AIDS as it affects women and children in Africa. And in 2008, she founded the global women's rights organization, The Circle. Annie was the first woman to be chancellor of Glasgow Caledonian University. And I was simply delighted when she awarded me an honorary doctorate last year. Welcome to the podcast, Annie. It's terrific to be in touch again. Thank you so much, Julia,
2: and it's an absolute honour for me to, to be able to talk to you today in this glorious podcast that you have created. It's just a delight. So thank you. I really appreciate being one of your guests.
1: Thank you, Andy. Now, I want to start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start, I'll take you back to your childhood You grew up in tenements in Aberdeen in Scotland. Can you paint a picture for us about what that was like, especially for listeners who might not know that much about Scotland and might not have a reference point?
2: Well, I was born in 1954, Christmas Day. So it was just in the middle, mid-50s, you know. And at that point in time, I think Scotland, like the rest of the UK, was still recovering from the Second World War. So there were still remnants of what had happened, the bombings that had taken place, you know, because Aberdeen is a city on the northeast coast. It was a shipbuilding town at that point still, and uh, it was targeted. So there were lots of little bomb sites around still and remains of what had happened in those bleak years of the Second World War. And Aberdeen is a city that's built from granite there's actually a huge quarry in the in the city and a lot of the stone that went into the building of the development in the uh, sort of early 19th century was taken from Rubeslaw Quarry. So it's a dark stone but it has a little bit of a glimmer it has some mica in it. so they call it the Silver City with the golden Sands. but actually my memories of Scotland as a child, Although there were happy times in a way that, you know, children were able to play out in the street quite safely. Their mothers just let them go and roam and then called them in when they needed to have a jam sandwich or something like that. When I look back on it, it's it's quite bleak in so many ways. I think people were living in the working class community that was uh, challenging still because, you know, they were just making ends meet. Everyone was making ends meet. It was that time just before the 60s when everything exploded into glorious technicolour, if you like. When I think about my childhood, I know about the changes between the mid-50s and the beginning of the 60s. And I think that's something that's very obvious to me. And I went through that personally. That's kind of what I represent in a funny sort of way. Part of that past is still with me very, very much. And part of that sort of cultural shift that took place as modernity came in, through something that was still, you know, the last plough horse in Aberdeen. Probably that happened in the mid-50s, you know, just coming into the 60s when people went from manual labour into
1: mechanised labour. So I can remember all these things, you know. Yeah, it's you've painted a very vivid picture. What did your mother and father do? And am I right in thinking they were very socially aware, very progressive people? Yes and
2: no. The socially aware part of my family really comes, and and I'm talking in a sort of political sense, that really comes from my father's side and my grandfather's side, the Lennox side of the family. And my grandfather worked in the shipyards as a a young man uh, with a young family to raise. And he he felt very ardently the, the state of workers' rights. And so my grandmother and grandfather were picketing outside the shipyard gates, when the sort of fascists were coming through the whole of the country, trying to build support on their side throughout the the working class side. And there was a lot of opposition to that, actually on the streets, physical fighting and all kinds of resistance, if you like. And my grandfather was part of that. And then obviously, my father was brought up in that very, it was very common, This a socialist, trade unionist discussions going around the table. And that obviously came, that kind of consciousness, I heard it at dinner tables. I heard conversations as a young child. I, I got the sense of justice and injustice and whatever that represents from a political point of perspective. You know, it was very clear cut for them at that time they were idealists and they believed very much in what was happening in Russia, the the communist development and the rights of workers. And that turned out to be latterly the balloon burst, because very obviously through the Stalinist regime and Lenin, all of these ultimately came out to be dictators at the end of the day, which seems to happen when people get a lot of power. We see it all the time. So my grandfather at 68 when the the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia was absolutely brokenhearted actually because he he realized that the dream was shattered it was something that they had supported turned out to be quite different you know i would say in a in a sense i'd like to say that i'm apolitical because i think that's a very safe place to be these days i like to think about middle ground and the extreme opposition I always know that there will be polarised extremes when it comes to politics. It must be so. But we have to be very careful that the middle ground doesn't get lost. So they're all there, aren't they? One extreme, the other extreme, and the middle ground. So I represent middle ground, I think.
1: In your childhood, with all of this happening in your background, with uh, you know working people's rights, socialism, sympathy with communism, What about gender? I mean, when was the first time, for example, that you noticed that boys were treated differently to girls? Was it a very gendered environment, the one you grew up in?
2: Yes, it was. It was a very conventional environment. Women accepted a kind of norm in a working class environment that that, that they wouldn't probably aspire to go to university. Um, My generation, my cousins, my sort of siblings, I'm an only child, but... My family, in that time, they realised that education was key to having some kind of mobility in one's life, to aspiring to a different kind of future than the future of our grandparents and parents, you know, that maybe didn't have the same opportunities that we now sort of expect to be just taken for granted in a funny sort of way. I'm very aware that education, it should be a right But it's in many, many places in the world, this key to social and um, development and opportunity is not accessible to lots of girls and women. At the time I was growing up, divorce was absolutely taboo. If someone was divorced, it was shameful. So we've come a long way from there when we've got like, I don't really know all statistics accurately, but I think it's roughly 40% of those who... (laughs) tie the knot, end up untying it, you know. So we're living in a very different time, you know. Roles were very clear, clearly defined. Women were housewives staying at home, keeping the home fires burning, as it were, where the men went out and did the manual labour. This is in the working class community, at least. They were not white-collar, they were blue-collar, how it's described in America particularly. Blue-collar workers with a trade and things started changing in the 60s and 70s and as a young teenager growing up i started questioning everything because it was our our generation's opportunity to start questioning and that caused quite a stir within my family my parents were very challenged by my my own perspectives and, they couldn't identify with it and that that I kind of represented those challenges, you know. It's sad for me in a way because I wish I could have explained to them, as I could explain now if they were here, what was actually taking place on a larger scale because it just seemed very threatening.
1: As a teenager, you were only 17. You left home to move to London on a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music and you ultimately ended up dropping out a couple of years later to pursue a career in professional music. Can you tell me about that journey? I mean, when, when did you first know you could sing? You know, what was it like to be at the Royal Academy? What was that time like for you? How did it feel to move from Aberdeen and everything that you would know, and mm. to London, which was by then into the 60s, into the swinging 60s?
2: Well, actually, I came first came down to to London in 1971. And, you know, there's quite a distinction between these decades, 60s when you think about it, 70s, think about that. There's a difference, you know. How did it feel coming down? Well, very, very challenging. I was excited about it at first because I had an idealistic dream that it would be something and it turned out to be different. Now, this is very often what happens that we have idealistic perspectives and we, we sort of, how could I say, project, don't we, that life is going to be a certain way and then reality hits and it's maybe a huge curveball. And I think I was hit by a curveball when I arrived in London. But to, to sort of respond to your, one of your questions within that big breadth of question, I actually was singing when I was a baby in the cot. <laughs> it's, you know, and children do sing it's so natural. Everyone sings, even if they sing out of tune. This is a beautiful thing because people say, oh, I love to sing, but I sing out of tune and I can't really, well, you can actually. You don't have to worry about condemnation from people. Just sing. It's for free. It's joy. It's expression. And that is really what I understood more than anything about profession. I would have never thought Ultimately, that I would become a singer songwriter. If anyone had told me at the time, it would have been impossible to understand that something so simple as singing, singing nursery rhymes, singing songs, learning songs, observing songs, that anything like that would end up becoming a life that I would pursue. Even when I arrived in London, it wasn't something I thought I could do. Never even occurred to me. So, That came after the dream of being some kind of classical musician that was shattered right away, right from the get-go. As soon as I arrived in London, I was told that my technique was so messed up that it would take me a year to sort of relearn everything. And that was a disincentive, I have to say. (laughs) Thank the Lord. It's funny, you know, I think the interesting thing to come out of this question, Julia, is that often we start off with ideas about things and they turn out to disappoint us and through that disappointment we seek for alternatives and then it's the possibility of actually discovering oneself not the view that someone had said to you like your mother or father you were going to be a doctor a lawyer a physician any of these things it might not be right for you you might not know and I know this journey very well so if anybody's listening. I know that journey when you're an adolescent, and it, it's a scary one. Some people are fortunate because they know what they want to do, and they pursue it, and it's very clear.
1: Some of us just, it takes time. And thank goodness you did leave that Royal Academy. Thank goodness. Then you were out in the world making your own music, and you told me once that You know, you'd been trying to be a success making your own music and you were readying to give it up and go back to Aberdeen and then your breakout hit Sweet Dreams happened and changed everything. Can you tell us about that time? Would you call that imposter syndrome or would you call it something else, that experience of not knowing that you were going to, Make it until <laughs> that 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 wonderful yes. wonderful song went out into the world. All right, <laughs> there
2: was a, a prelude if you if you like to eurythmics, and that was a group called the Tourists, and we actually came to Australia and uh, toured in Australia, <laughs> and we released three albums. Dave and I at the time we were not writing songs for the Tourists; that they, those songs were written by. Pete Coons who after he left the tours that was when Eurythmics actually which is Dave and I we sort of emerged from years of touring making albums you know some very strong experiences in the tours that that um, when you talk about the point where I wanted to leave Dave and I had made a Eurythmics album called In the Garden and released it it was very experimental and it You know, we still hadn't quite really defined our our sound as Eurythmics, as we are known now through Sweet Dreams and et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, after Eurythmics' first album and that kind of feeling that I didn't think it was going to go anywhere because I just had done so many things that had kind of failed, if you like, or succeeded a bit, but then failed. And at that point, I was about 29 years old. And one day I came into the studio to work with Dave and I really felt that I probably had to go back to Aberdeen and become, I don't know what. I didn't want to be a music teacher. That was not part of the deal. But I I was visualising the train and the ticket and the long overnight journey back. And that was the day that we ended up writing Sweet Dreams. It's so funny. That was the day. We didn't know that Sweet Dreams was going to still be, everyone listens to Sweet Dreams, you know, after, it's over 40 years. And that song, it's so funny. It's like a theme for Eurythmics, but we've written so, so many songs, but Sweet Dreams seems to be our anthem in a way.
1: I think everyone has heard Sweet Dreams. I can certainly play it in my head. I can imagine in my mind the music video that went with it. You know, this huge hit by the Eurythmics by you and Dave Stewart. And in the music video, you've got this very iconic look with striking short orange hair, and you're wearing a man's suit. Mm-hmm. And that received a lot of media attention because it really went against the hyper feminine presentation of a lot of female artists, which was typical at that time. Was that a deliberate choice that you wanted to lean into a more androgynous look in order to position yourself outside of the kind of traditional male gaze? I think it was actually, but it was not just an
2: overnight thing, you know, it was about these years that I've mentioned to you years of experience of playing in front of audiences and sometimes hostile audiences or at that time you know with the 70s the punk movement was really very powerful in a for youth culture and uh, at times it could express itself in quite a riotous way and you know we were playing in little clubs and sometimes we'd see bottles thrown and people fighting and all kinds of quite challenging situations, you know. That wasn't women fighting, by the way. (laughs) It's mainly young men. But in any case, it kind of toughened me up. I was trying to figure out, who am I? Because when you're a performer, you're expressing yourself to crowds of people. And then your image is taken, photographed, and propagated everywhere. And I was really trying to define, who am I? Over those years, you know, I had hairstyles that changed, clothes that changed. It was kind of post-punk, new wave, whatever we, were, we looked at, we sort of defined. I mean, I wasn't to know how people were going to take it. I wouldn't say, I think people are going to see me as an androgynous, this or that. It, it wasn't even the languaging for me, wasn't that clear. But it definitely felt empowering because Dave and I were a duo, a woman and a man. This sense of we are together in this, that we are side by side, that we are equal, that I am strong and you don't mess with me. It was definitely very empowering. People may have thought it was about my own sexuality, my own gender, if you like. But it wasn't really about that. It was really saying women can be as strong as man. I can be as strong as the man and you don't mess with me now. And I, it's so strong when I look at it now. I mean, I, I still have short hair. I cut it and dyed it myself yesterday, which is my, <laughs> which is what I am apt to do these days. After lockdown, you know, I, I got myself a pair of shears. So it came in very handy. At that point in time, the word celebrity had not come into fruition really in the way that it registers now that, uh, you know, it's such different times. And, uh, I had no style team, hairdresser, makeup person. I mean, on a when when we sort of could afford it, and when we had sort of developed into something that could afford bigger budgets on videos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, it's it became something like that. But actually, so much of what we did was, you know, what do they say? Something about the mother of invention. When when you don't have things, then you have to have the means to create. That was the point. It wasn't about uh, having the the celebrity teams that people have today. That wasn't even on the cards, you know.
1: We really can't talk about the Eurythmics without mentioning Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves, an incredible song, iconic, enduring feminist anthem. Where did that come from?
2: It really is one of those, uh, you know, those blues songs where they say, I woke up this morning and like both my cars were gone so i woke up one morning in a hotel room and i think it was in la it's a really strange thing because at that time you know we were so focused on songwriting so songwriting was a very very important thing and i i felt that I, the need to express was part of my really part of my life, you know. So I haven't written songs in a long time, but anyway, going back to the morning that I woke up, there was the start of a song in my head, you know. And I started thinking, hmm, I could visualize it. An anthem, I wanted to write an anthem. I, it was very much part of this thinking, just woke up and went, ooh, maybe I could write an anthem. I wasn't thinking feminist anthem, but I was thinking a song for women because we've come a long way. And what about something to celebrate that and, and to acknowledge it? So I thought it would be really interesting to start with, well, there was a time, you know, this is a really sort of typical blues introduction when they used to say you know, that behind every great man, there has to be a great woman. But in these times of change, you know that it's no longer true. So we're coming out of the kitchen because there's something I forgot to say to you. (laughs) You know, it's, it gives me goosebumps now because we're still very much trying to make changes, positive transformative change for girls and women everywhere around the world. The Western world has had a lot of change since our grandparents' time, our our, you know, our grandmother's time. A lot. But so much needs to be done. And you and I both know this, but once that fire, that kindling of flame is ignited, it doesn't go away. (laughs) It stays with you, I think, for the rest of your life. And if I personally feel that once that is there, to the rest of my days, I will always be feminist. It took me a while, you know, to feel that I was worthy enough. This is going to sound interesting. It took me a long time to feel I could be a feminist because at that time when I started thinking about women's empowerment, it was in the early 70s. And I actually, because I wore makeup, still wear makeup, because I wore and I liked high-heeled shoes and dresses, my thinking was that I wasn't worthy of being a feminist, you know? And I think that was a lot of women's thinking because we had the sense that feminists were something that maybe wouldn't... I would be looked on or disregarded, you know? I just lightweight, vanilla feminists. Now I know so deeply that I'm in my DNA that I'm a feminist. And, and then I say I'm a global feminist because I, I feel that languaging is very, very essential right now.
1: I want to come to you setting up the circle and global feminism. But just before I get there, I want to talk about a moment when a spark was kindled in you. Mm -hmm. You've just used that expression. And it's when you met with Nelson Mandela in the early 2000s, and you've described that experience of learning from him about HIV AIDS and its devastating impact on women and girls in Africa as really being pivotal to you setting on this path of activism and working on HIV AIDS. Can you talk to us about that moment? For me, and I don't often talk about this really, to be honest,
2: but there is a very, very deep connection with this man. I had the privilege to meet him several times. The cause was around HIV and AIDS, as it was affecting the entire population of South Africa at that time, wiping people out. One in five people died of AIDS at that time. And it was a shock. And Mandela took musical artists like myself to visit hospitals and clinics i mean he gave us the passport to go behind the curtain and actually witness an hiv aids pandemic in this country of south africa and it was profoundly shocking it just never left me and it's part of the reason why i campaigned so so for so long and things have changed now things are a great deal better but it's still a massive issue hiv aids is still a huge issue all kinds of countries, but yes, Nelson Mandela, the great Nelson Mandela, who I revere as I do dear beloved Bishop Tutu and these great men that really were humanitarians beyond everything else. They were humanitarians. You know, it brings back a great deal of memory for me and it brings me back to actually strengthen my resolve. When, you know, when you become an advocate or an activist... It can be extremely draining because, you know, you often feel that you're against a huge brick wall. And I've met many people who have experienced that feeling of being burnt out because it's it's hard. You know, you're often sort of shouting into the void, as it were. You feel as if there's nothing happening. And yet, you know, change is something we can always rely on, that over the course of time, change will happen. We never know if it will be for the better or the worse, but we—that that is the hope. That's the great message from Mandela, hope over despair. And I think it's some, very often I've gone back to that message that he engendered
1: in his life. And for those moments when you feel with your activism that you might be screaming out into the void, is there a song you turn to that makes you feel empowered, <laughs> brave? <laughs>
2: Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow. Whoa, whoa. But if we are wise, then we can see a bright tomorrow. Lean on me. Oh,
1: beautiful, beautiful.
2: You know, songs are so powerful, and I sing, I sing it to you just like this, just spontaneously, because that's that's the gift I was given just to sing, just to express beyond spoken word, beyond conversation. When we touch on the singing voice that everyone has, we touch on our soul, we go deeper. So I know how powerful music is. And that song is one of
1: so many. I felt the wonderful power of it then. Can I ask you now about the circle and global feminism? You created the circle and it's advocated for ending poverty, for garment workers, implementing a living wage for them, and so much more. What should we understand global feminism to mean?
2: Well, it started from the understanding that I had, the aha moment moment when I actually experienced the difference between the Western world and the developing world. And that sounds like a very simplified, concentrated statement. But the fact that Comic Relief and Nelson Mandela, Oxfam, these organisations, gave me an opportunity to witness firsthand the differential between the Western world and poverty, people living in extreme poverty, and the challenges that they face, as well as HIV and AIDS, I realized that women and girls were profoundly disempowered. I saw that for myself. I saw that little girls did not have access to education, even primary school education, because their parents couldn't afford to put them to the school. They couldn't afford the uniform and the books and all of this. I mean, it's a huge, huge, how would I say, dip into a, a profound realization. So I carried that with me and this sort of desire to reach out to women from my background, let's say, as I would say, like in the West, because sisters are doing it for themselves, that song, and as it describes, we have made some tremendous steps. We've taken some tremendous steps. Women are judges, women are doctors, women are nurses, women are teachers. We have professions. Women are politicians who call men out for their misogyny, <laughs> like you, Julia.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but,
2: you know, we can take this very much for granted, and we can we can only see it from that slightly myopic perspective. You know, when we start looking in the developing world, and I it's I don't even like saying that. I would say. Uh, not quite developing world at times because it's shocking. And I see the disempowerment. Societies and cultures that don't give women a chance, that are violent towards women, where gender-based violence is normalized. It's just normal. Girls are beaten, girls are raped, girls are abused, girls are not given opportunities, and girls and women are taking the brunt of day-to-day existence, which is really In some ways, I would describe it as medieval when you go to Afghanistan, for example, which we don't often go to Afghanistan. But we know that men are deliberately turning back women's women and girls rights, even just to, you know, not have to cover their entire bodies. That's only a small thing with regard to the turning back of rights where girls are not even able to to study in primary school. It's abhorrent in my view. So the the need to call this out, the need to keep that conversation on the table at the very least is essential because so much goes on that we don't know about. And the thing that excites me in a way is that we can now actually communicate with each other from really far distances, as we are doing now. But we're having a fantastic conversation, you know, and I think this, this power of conversation, power of influence, advocating, this is between those that are working at the grassroots level, those that are at the face of hardship and difficulty, there are grassroots organisations representing women and girls everywhere. And I think as Western women, it is our duty, if you like, to help support our sisters everywhere around the world, not only in our own countries, but as much as we can reach out to support women and girls that are absolutely disempowered at every level so the circle in a way has evolved from that need and there have been many actions and many conversations taken and we've evolved into becoming an organization an ngo that i think really has such potential we're really at a very special place because things have changed so much since the first idea of the circle arose you know back then i'm very excited about our prospects for the future because I actually can see where the influence and support can make tremendous change, looking further down the line. So it's it's exciting to me. We're all on a journey. We'll see where it goes, you know.
1: It is exciting. And you've given us a cause to focus on global feminism, and you've given us the music to inspire us. Thank you for that. I'm going to come now to the last few questions. These are questions that I ask each of my guests. The first of them is, what's the worst misogyny you've ever experienced?
2: Oh, my. Well, you know, looking back, I've probably had many, to be honest. But I think the worst one is just the collective normalising of misogyny. So one day I was talking to a male friend and they said to me, you know, if you heard how men talk about women when they're in the pub, you'd be horrified. And I said, what? What do you mean? He said, well, you know, men talk about women in a horrible way, in a disgusting way, and that's just how they speak. Now, that's just a tiny, that's just one little tiny thing, but it was actually someone letting me in on the normalization of misogynistic conversation that takes place everywhere. And I still, to this day, find it very hard to accept that men's attitudes to women is so debased, is so degraded. Now, I could go on to tell you another tale, but I think really this one is enough. You know, just think about that. How do men talk about
1: women? when women aren't there, I agree with you, that story, that one is enough. On a far happier note, if you imagine that for a moment you had all the power in the world, Mm. what's the one thing you'd change for women?
2: I would wave a magic wand and I would change men's attitudes towards women. I would have them experience women's experience. I would have them walk in the shoes of
1: girls and women. That's it. That would change the world. That would definitely change the world. I always ask my guests to comment on a fact. And the fact I'm going to put to you, I've actually taken from the circle's website. And the fact is 603 million women live in countries where domestic violence isn't considered to be a crime. It speaks for itself. It does. It does. So much more to do. And then my final question for you is not really a question. It's to get you to comment on a quote from Virginia Woolf, for whom, of course, this podcast is named. Virginia Woolf said, I will not be famous, great. I will go on adventuring, changing, changing opening my mind and my eyes, refusing to be stamped and stereotyped. The thing is to free oneself, to let it find its dimensions, not be impeded. Annie Lennox says, I just say, wow, (laughs) so elegant,
2: so elegant. It sums it all up. And ultimately, you know, we are all searching for identity, self-empowerment. And we need labels. Labels are very, very helpful. That's why this terminology of global feminism speaks to the actual situation itself. However, we all need to go beyond labels because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we must love and respect each other and understand through compassion and empathetic view how it is for the others how it is for everyone who's different to ourselves having that loving gaze having that will to be kind that's what makes a great that's what makes humanity great that's the great side of humanity the other one is reductive it's othering it's cruel it has no heart without empathy, without understanding, and the willingness to listen to a diametrically opposite view, but just to sit with it, just to listen, rather than coming at it with aggressivity, just listening. I think that's really important, and I think that's where we need to get back to. I think we need to build bridges rather than have huge divides, if that makes sense.
1: It most certainly does. And you build a lot of bridges. Annie Lennox, thank you for a beautiful and very profound conversation. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's just wonderful. Thank you.
3: A podcast of One Zone is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari, and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at giwlkings. Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time.
0: only from rustolium